In times like these, being a citizen is a big job. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the virtues of self-rule and debate the state of our republic. Welcome to the Citizen's Prerogative Podcast. This is the voice of your nerdy host, Michael Biscatelli, and we are blessed with a co-host whose passion for our republic precedes him everywhere he goes, Raymond Wong Jr. Thank you. Thank you. I'll try not to restrict this conversation. <laughs> ah, this is episode number 27. I think I'm on the money. I was off the money last week. Episode number 27. We're talking about the state of voting and representation. Mostly about voting. We'll see if we can get to representation. That might have to be another episode. So today, um, in, in pulling up on voting, we're going to go through and cover a lot of the time might end up being just talking about the wonderfully diverse, air quotes, diverse history of voting in our country since its inception. We're just going to do that briefly. <laughs> we'll see how brief it is. And then um, we, we want to talk about some of the contemporary issues that are coming up in state houses across our country, um, where there are just such great ideas about how to restrict people's access to voting. Um, because we know that definitely makes for a better democracy, right? Well, I just also want to stress, because we're going to talk about this timeline, Michael, and I thank you for bringing us through it. But uh, let's just be clear that the ideals of voting and self-rule is still young. and It's an experiment. We have plenty and plenty of generations and decades and, and centuries of uh, domineering autocrat autocratic rule. So we've, we've seen that sample. We have plenty of that. Let's try self-rule a little bit more and understand that what we're talking about is an experiment. The only other one was pretty much the Romans, and that was the failed experiment. That's the what we keep being uh, compared to, which I think we're a little different because we're not wearing togas, at least not today. <laughs> not today. Maybe tomorrow. Oh, yeah. We compare ourselves to Rome, too. This system was designed to hopefully not suffer the same fate. However, it's got democratic foundations or is intended to have democratic foundations. And the more democratic it becomes, the closer to the path of Rome we may walk. Um, and then after we're, after we're done reviewing a little bit of the history and the current state, we're going to have a call to action. Uh, that's part, we're trying to be more consistent with that in our new format, because we're all about what we can do together to make this thing better. Before we get into it, though, um, a brief history, a brief timeline on voting. Thank you, Wikipedia. I um, This isn't the complete history they have out there. It's just the snippets I thought might be useful. And as I'm going to try and do this in somewhat rapid fire, if my voice can hold out. And Ray, feel free to pause me at any point, because I'm sure you're going to have some fun commentary to contribute. Uh, so let's go back to 1789, Constitution of the United States grants the states the power to set voting requirements. Lovely. <laughs> uh, 1789, not too uh, long after the Declaration of Independence. Um, I, when they say the Constitution, I'm assuming this is like the third version from the Continental Congress. But rolling forward, I'm going to keep going. Oh, there's some details though, right? Who could vote? So it granted the power to the states. However, um, at this time, 
only some states allowed black men to vote. New Jersey also included unmarried and widowed women, regardless of color. And uh, since married women were not allowed to own property, they could not meet the property qualifications. Um, so you had to own property. And state by state, you know, whether or not you were allowed to vote as a black person, that was decided. I think this is kind of highlights that uh, we've always been very complicated as a nation. Very much so. And, and early on, I mean, if, if we believe, I'm going to say believe in the patriarchy, I don't know if you need to have faith in that. I think it's a fact that the early founding of this country was by a patriarchy of people who said, we're setting up this system and we hope it'll work. And over time, we're going to learn to trust the people with it. But the people were obviously not with it in the beginning. <laughs> it wasn't of the people in the beginning. It was of the elites, of the aristocrats, um, the people who set it up at the time. So um, there's a lot of back and forth around New Jersey. I'm not going to cover this in detail. Like New Jersey, Vermont, um, Georgia, those are a few states that pop on and off the list over the years where they're either allowing women or disallowing women or um, changing their property requirements. But if I zip forward to 1870, uh, the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution, it prevents states from denying the right to vote on the grounds of race, color, previous condition of servitude. So this was when we were freeing the slaves, right? I think 13th Amendment might have been, you know, the first one. And then 14th, 15th really solidified who gets to vote, who, who's a citizen, and then, you know, who gets to vote. And so it's not until 1870, right? We're we always think of 1776, 1789 was the version of the Constitution we're operating on, and then 1870, which is almost what almost 100 years later. And we get to the 15th Amendment, but then we still have then we have the birth of Jim Crow um, in the South. And Jim Crow, if you're not familiar with that, is basically um, is is separating us based on our race and fear campaigns. I mean, the KKK starts to be born and um, there's terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. I don't know how else to say it. Terrorism begins across the South. That's how I would describe Jim Crow. Do you disagree? I don't know if there is any uh, anything you can say to describe Jim Crow perfectly, but what I would say is that it was an active campaign to to indicate that they were not wrong and that there was a groundswell of support. So I think it was a public campaign to the entire nation and to themselves uh, to, to, to indicate that this is a, a solid ideal and heritage, and this is a cultural matter for that that. Re those people that identified with this era or, or really started to develop that KKK. Um, it was, it was propaganda in, in, a, in a classic form and mm. it was successful because D reconstruction stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Reconstruction stopped for economic reasons. It got too expensive. Um, and then, yeah, the, the South, you know, suppressed black votes right after that. And that's what Jim Crow had the effect of doing. And it was through terrorism. It was through lynchings. It was through church burnings, home burnings. Um, you know, they're just terrorism. 
And uh, they also instituted poll taxes, literacy tests. Uh, I don't know what a grandfather clause is. I'd have to go back and look at that. But all of these um, hurdles to prevent people from being eligible to vote to begin with. If Even if you were brave enough to try and vote because you, were, you, you might be risking your life to vote. Mm, scary times. Very scary times. I'm wondering at what point of these times um, some in our country want to take us back to. Well, and I, I think that, you know, I don't know if we're ready to jump to 1882 with the, with the Chinese Americans losing their right to vote and become citizens through the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, I just want to be clear because this is something I've kind of dropped uh, a note on in the past that the Chinatowns that we visit today and, and a lot of things, even like the fortune cookie that is such a mainstream of American culture is, is part of this, this Chinese Exclusion Act um, that really uh, was the core of what we're facing still today, which is the marginalization of a group of individuals for, for whatever reason, for the betterment of the public, whatever the perception is or whatever those lawmakers thought they were, thought they were doing at the time. Now, what we can do when we visit those places, I want to be clear on that, is when we visit Chinatowns, please tell the story and please in ensure that you tell your children and tell your family and friends what Chinatown is, that it is the Chinese Exclusion Act. Maybe even tell them about the fortune cookie. Um, I, I, that's all I can say I would do. And that's what I did even in my business environment, because at, at our work events, they always wanted to bring the fortune cookie in and show it off like this is so cool. And I told the board, you know, at our work network groups, yeah, we can show the fortune cookie, but we have to tell the story of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that's how I killed it every time this big push on I, idolizing the fortune cookie during our diversity events, right? I said that, no, we're not going to push it unless Just we tell the in. story. Fill us yeah. in a little bit on the fortune cookie. We're there now, but we weren't there 10, 12 no, years ago. No, fill us ago. in. Does it, it's it's <laughs> relationship to the Exclusion Act. Was was there secret messages being passed in cookies? Oh, well, so I'm glad I could give you a little bit of insight. I, all that I want people to understand is that when the Chinese Exclusion Act was formed, it required the Chinese people to live in certain parts of the city, usually the less desirable, right? So if you go to Chinatowns, they're very tight, uh, not the maybe very uh, hilly, that sort of thing for San Francisco in particular. So they were forced to work in that area and they couldn't work in standard industries. So Chinese had to invent new industries. So the fortune cookie was invented to appease um, a lack of jobs. So and a lack of ways to make money. So the fortune cookie was actually a uh, just an industry. So the, the Asian community is seen as the most successful because of our rise, but really what it is, they just turned inward and created new industries, their own doctors, their own hospitals, and they moved away from the system that existed, right? And it's, the fortune cookie came out of that. Yeah, it's like an artifact of being excluded. It was an adaptation to the exclusion or response to it in a way, right? Or a coping mechanism. We don't see it anymore, but if you're old enough, you remember the Chinese restaurants that served Chinese and American food. So even when the Chinese reintegrated, there was a whole period where I think they really tried not to toe the line and the restaurants would serve Mexican and Chinese food or just Mexican and, and American food. Most food was mixed in the Chinese community. And was that part of, again, I just want to stress to everyone that voting rights matter. And voting rights impact a community. And this is a clear example of where uh, the American public 
decided that for some reason exclusion was right. And now we do, we agree the Chinese shouldn't be excluded, right? So I think that it behooves us. It's, it's a deep thought exercise to think, oh, if we've been wrong in the past, maybe we're wrong today. So I'll pause. I'll get off my soapbox. No, thank you for helping to enlighten me and, and everyone who's listening. And I, you know, I think this also points to an interesting perspective because this is a case where, you know, once again, I should point out that racism is across the entire country. Earlier when I was talking about, you know, Jim Crow and things like that, that, that was an explicit outward, visible, visceral artifact of Southern Confederacy extremism, lost cause propaganda um, around the South. But make no mistake, the whole country was racist. Like any any fully in, any fully white insular community in the Northeast to the Northwest to the Midwest, we're all Chicago. You name it. I mean, there New York racism rampant. New York's not a good example because they've always been on the fence. But go to Maine. I don't know any anywhere. Um, New Haven, Boston, in the United States, racism was rampant. Um, but it wasn't the law. That's the only difference. And it's not a big difference when you consider people's truths felt and lived and lived experiences. Um, it's one thing to be protected under the law, but if you're rejected by your community or the community neighboring you, that's not a copacetic situation to be in. So it's never been, there's, there's never been a shining city on the hill for any of these groups. <laughs> I'm just going to say, and that's that shining oh, hill is Tulsa. in the future, right? Is in the future. It's, it's also not... might've been a shining city on the hill. Yes. It Tulsa was a massacre till it was um, might've, you know, and, and when, the, when, when, when duly elected, you know, African-Americans, you know, in the South, because they had the voting power, they had the numbers and, and there was a backlash. So any hill, I, just to bring, sorry, like, I want to be clear, Michael's right, there is no shining city or anything on the hill because we kept tearing it down. Those of us in power, those of us that were accepted. And, and I guess because I'm half Chinese, I'm, I'm, I'm accepted now, right? But, but those of us that had been marginalized in the past, you know, once you regain your rights as Chinese citizens, it, again, these half these blended restaurants you saw to try to get the American public in, it just, again, I think you see this, this, da this damage and, and sensitivity in the community. Sorry, but let's talk about women because we start getting into some serious women movement. Let's remember that the women had zero right to vote still um, at this still, time. Yeah, unless you were in Utah or maybe New Jersey. Oh no, at this point, um, it was retracted. It, it was retracted. 1807 votes are taken away from free black males and from all women in New Jersey. So sorry, you were out by 1807. You had had it prior to that. Or yeah. <laughs> so fun. This country. Uh, what is, what's that song? Hokey Pokey. Once you in, once you. Is that out. what it was invented? Are they I'm talking about voting go, rights? We should go look at that. I that is the official song for voting rights. You put your women in, you put your women out, you put your women in in Montana, and then shake you shake it all about. 
you go to Nevada, you get your rights. You're like, I, we're going to work on this song, folks. Sorry. Sorry for the raw behind the scenes there. So anyways, women. In 40, yeah. in 30, 1883. Um, so right after Chinese Exclusion Act, Washington Territory, they get the right to vote. Women. I'll look at that. And it's funny, too, because in somewhere in here, you'll see they'll, women will get the right in a territory. But once it becomes a state, they lose it. <laughs> Let's be very yeah, that's unfortunate. I'm not, I shouldn't be laughing. I'm sorry, I, I don't mean very to clearly. laugh. When it's you say funny. Washington Territory, okay, it's what I'm laughing at is the ridiculousness of our nation, uh, not the, the strong pioneering women of the West. And yes. let's be clear: when we say in you know 1883 Washington Territory, that's the West Coast. These are pioneering women who likely lost their husbands. So in the territories, you were more likely as a woman to be able to keep keep your land and have the right to vote because their husbands died on the long trek of pioneering or they died while trying to establish the settlements. So understand this wasn't like, yay, you did it. It's basically, well, I guess all your men are dead so we should probably give you the right. This That's ridiculous. But again, a triumph for a moment. Mm -hmm. 1883 in a territory. And then that takes us to 1887. Um, citizenship was granted to Native Americans who were willing to dislocate themselves from their tribe. Isn't that great? Women in Washington lose the right to vote. Women in Utah lose the right to vote. Kansas, women are in the right to vote in municipal elections only, <laughs> only for mayor. I doubt they could run for mayor. We, we should go look for that. And then, and then we have Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, North Dakota, and South Dakota granting partial suffrage to women. In 1887, this is very, this is very intense. This is roller coaster, uh, this hokey pokey, and about. I, I and I want to be clear. There's there's some other uh, systems of government out there that allow just election of their mayors and local officials. Uh, it's communist China. So just so you know, we're on par with them about now. <laughs> 1887, we're in sync with communist China, in rural territories. 1913. Okay, had a bit of a jump here, right? Um, crossed across the threshold, we've, we now have, for the first time, direct election of senators. Um, that was established by the 17th Amendment to the Constitution. It gave voters, rather than state legislatures, the right to elect senators. That's in the 1900s, 1913. <laughs> now, and people probably think we've always directly elected senators. No, not the case. I was trying to figure out why they didn't like us. I'm really glad we did this episode today because I didn't know why the senators despise us so much as American people. It's because they never, we, they, we used to, they used to run amok. Yep. Yeah, oh, they, were, poor, they were selected by the elites. They were the elites selected by the elites. It was very monar monarchical. Monarchical? How do you say that? It's like oh, monarchy. I, yeah. No, Parliament. Sorry. Parliamentary. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's more regardless, it, the, the problem is the elites have the power. They still yeah. do. But but it's still it's, it's interesting that this push and, and I didn't even know about it. So I'm glad I'm learning today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we became we moved closer to democracy. We became more democratic in 1913 when our ballot, the ballot we fill out, has now our senator on it, which is great. And then uh, it looks like Territory Alaska White and Afri uh, African-American women are in the right to vote there, probably for homesteading purposes or, or a, res a result of homesteading, like you mentioned earlier. And I, so can we, 
Mm-hmm. Like, I want to be clear too. Like, we we spoke about a little bit about the senators not being elected. There was a perception in Washington and the power and the elite that Americans could not mentally handle the rigors of making these types of decisions. So, I want everyone to understand that um, it it was good intentioned. Okay, for as best as you can say that, that's what they thought. The leaders in our country thought we were all, and that still nothing has changed. They believe we are too simple to rule ourselves. And that's why we weren't electing our senators at one point, right? They thought, no, no, we can't, no, we couldn't possibly. And these were landowners, right? These were the the, the wealthiest people in the country, and they still Mm -hmm. thought they were too simple to vote. Yeah, the patriarchy was is deep in our system and its roots. There's another point I wanted to bring up about that, but it escapes me now. <laughs> but that that concept of um, patriarchy, where where they're going to trust us with the right to vote and and who's allowed to vote, and you think about the um, I was thinking about the uh, you know the assembly line that you operate on to arrive in a Senate seat at this time or up until this time prior to direct elections. And it was like, you know, going to your, whatever the Ivy league school was of your state, right? Because you're getting to know the people who are getting elected to the state house because the state house is who's going to select you to go represent the state in the Senate of the U S. And, and like, depending on what state you were in, depending on what that path looked like. Right. Because if you're coming from the authoritarian, aristocratic South, top-down South, it's a different path than coming from the more egalitarian Northeast perspective, I would say. Um, although in the Northeast, I'm sure you still had to go to Yale, Harvard, but there, there's boxes you had to check, right? There's <laughs> so <clears throat> in any case, let's move on. 1913, direct election. We love direct election. Uh, 1914, we get Nevada, Montana, women get to vote. 1917, Arkansas, Rhode Island. So onesie, twosie, women are going state by state. They're winning this thing because the federal government doesn't want to let them in. And we've talked about this before too. There's there's racism even in women getting the right to vote because only white women were really championing it early on um, as far as the suffrage is concerned. And they were trying to use that to win over the white Southern states um, to give them the vote. They're like, well, we're, we're going to vote with our white men. Give us the vote. Horrible. Um, eventually all of that kind of calmed down too, but I, I don't know that the women's suffrage ever fully, like really fully integrated. It's, it's been a weird, this country's always pit people. We've always pit ourselves against each other. Um, where should I jump to? So we've got 1920 here. Um, Women are guaranteed the right to vote by the 19th Amendment. In practice, the same restrictions that hindered the ability of non-white men to vote now also applied to non-white women. So if you were a black woman, you were still subject to whatever was what still from Jim Crow and all this, any any type of segregation that was happening in the Southern states, and then also any kind of intimidation that might be happening in Northern states. Because there were a lot of problems during the industrial times when Black people moved north into the factories. They were not welcomed. (laughs) Um, Keep going. 1924, all Native Americans are granted citizenship and the right to vote. 
and it didn't matter what your tribe affiliation was. So at this point, approximately two-thirds of Native Americans were already citizens, and some Western states con continued to bar Native Americans from voting until 1948. 1943. Wow, all the way to 1943, Chinese immigrants are given the right to citizenship and the right to vote. I tried not to get angry, but I didn't realize uh, it went that long. Wow. I didn't either. And I, but, and I, wow. You got a long way to come. And that's the thing is it's strange. So even in, the, and I'll be admitted as a Chinese American and my family, like this is not very in there. We don't talk about it. It's never discussed. It's not even this, this just happened. You know, I, I'm confused why my grandparents didn't speak on any of this. It's the end of the war. Looks like end of world war two ish. Uh, 1948, Arizona and New Mexico, among the last states to extend full rights to Native Americans. And uh, 61, D.C. 1961, residents of D.C. are granted the right to vote for U.S. president. And yeah. residents of D.C. are largely black. African-American. African-American. That was the 23rd Amendment to the Constitution. Wow. But this you know, is like, but that's, at least they didn't hit 25 because then you've really just pushed it. That's taken too long. You know, you got, you got it in the top 23. That's just depressing, you know, and mm. I would have given my Chinese right. I would have I taken a, a bow, given them more time. They deserve it. So interesting, too, because it's just a geography. Well, in, in law, it's geography. Like you said, we know what people were being excluded. Um, 1962 to 64. So now most of what you hear in the news, right, a lot of what gets discussed today harkens back only this far, um, back to the mid-60s. Mid and so this was when we had a historic turning point um, where the Supreme Court established one man, one vote. Um, and then there's a bunch of other decisions that come down where there are challenges trying to increase access to the right of vote, uh, the right to vote. 1964, um, poll tax payment uh, prohibition had been put in for federal elections. So there were still poll taxes up until the 60s. There were, um, of course, intimidation campaigns, probably tests, literacy tests or, or other things potentially, even if they were barred, even if they were barred on the Constitution of the United States federally, those things only applied to federal offices, to elect federal offices. So if you lived in Georgia or Alabama or something like that, you probably still couldn't, you probably could only vote if you were black. You could only vote for like the president of the United States and maybe a senator and maybe the house. I don't know. You probably didn't get to vote for anybody at your state level or your county. Crazy. Uh, 65, protection of voter registration for racial minorities. Right? It's not enough to just give people the right. You have to actually protect it and give it some teeth. 66, um, we stopped requiring payment, tax payment and wealth requirements to vote. So up until 1966, states still could put a minimum amount of wealth. So it didn't matter whether what your race was. If you were poor, you were being excluded from voting up until 1966. It's 1966, people. 1970, uh, Alaska ends use of literacy tests. 
And that, you know, those literacy tests harken back to the idea that, well, we can't just trust anybody with the right to vote. They have to be able to read. Come to find out, just a little aside, these literacy tests were always BS because they always contained information that the people who were taking the test would not know. They were cultural things or uh, information that primarily white people and schools, et cetera, those are the things they would learn, not necessarily the schools that the natives or black people would go to, right? Um, weren't learning the answers to what was on these literacy tests. So just to be clear, it's not we're trying to make sure people can read. <laughs> these are questions designed to exclude you, you from voting, targeted. It's really bad. Uh, 71. I know, I'm running out of time here. <laughs> age uh, Adults age 18 through 21 are granted the right to vote uh, through 26th Amendment. So before 1971, you had to be 21 to vote. We figured by that time we had allowed enough of our kids to die at war, we should allow them to vote. 1973, um, Washington, D.C., local elections such as mayor, councilman, was restored after a hundred year gap. 1973, DC was not allowed to elect a mayor or a councilman. It was provided for them by Congress. 1986. Um, I just want to be clear that, that that's Hong Kong. Beijing government does the same thing for Hong Kong. So we'll be clear. <laughs> so as of 1973, Washington, D.C. stopped being Hong Kong. The... <laughs> oh, wow. This is such a good perspective. This, this could just be the whole episode. Uh, 1986, the United States military and uniformed services, merchant marine, other citizens overseas living on bases in the United States abroad or on ships uh, were granted the right to vote. So... If you were actively deployed, if you were overseas, if you were in the military, on a U.S. base, you couldn't vote until 1986. Thank you, Reagan. Is that... Isn't that convenient that the people that are making the decision about whether you're over on that island, you, you don't can't get to tell them, them if you disagree. Well, probably because it wouldn't be good news. It probably wouldn't be good news for the elected official. That's really, and I'm really upset at those two points. I just need to get back on my soapbox. I'm going to set it out here and say that this thing about the you, the military not being able to vote when deployed or, or, or anywhere in the bases and the fact that 18-year-olds were being marched off to their doom and couldn't vote, you know, in, 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 in during the Vietnam War. Yeah. is insane to me it's these and if you and don't we had see... conscription by the way for anybody who doesn't know yeah, that's right. it was not Verifying. a volunteer service military During that time it was conscription. conscription so you you were you were drafted right and to understand yeah. that now better and, and i always knew the 18 year old move became came because of that but now thinking about it in my post-social justice brain it's so manipulative. It's so wrong. It's so restrictive, right? That you send them off to, yeah, we're going to send them off to military. They can't vote anyways. They, they can't vote. So mm -hmm. what do they, they, they can't even descend. They have no opinion. And I, I, I'm glad they made this change. But again, what sacrifice, right? This whole list to me, you've taken me through has been a list of sacrifice. I'll let you get finished, but I'm glad you did this because 
frankly, I, I have not gone through a thorough list and I don't know anyone that has. And this has been the hokey pokey. <laughs> I can't wait to do a video version or whatnot. Yeah. With hokey pokey in the background. Cause yeah. welcome to the United States, ladies and gentlemen, this is our country. Um, and I, and I'm, thank you for saying that because I I'm, I'm having the same experience. Like I copy and pasted this list together. It's less than the full one. Um, but I intentionally tried not to read. I just read it enough to know this is significant. Pull it in, pull it in, pull it in. Now we're going through it together. I get goosebumps thinking about it too. Oh, the freest country on earth. It's been a long road to get to this point and we should not take it for granted. Wow, that was 1986. The last bullet I have here is 2013. The Supreme Court ruled in the 5-4 Shelby County versus Holder decision that Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional. Section 4B stated, if states or local governments want to change their voting laws, they must appeal to the Attorney General. I ended it there, although I should have continued it to um, Citizens United uh, decision where, you know, money is, is free speech, but that doesn't affect our access to the vote. So we'll deal with that as campaign finance. It's a little bit different. Um, but this 5-4 decision in 2013 is really remarkable. Um, and I just want to talk about it a little bit. I know we're going to be over time, but it's really important for people to understand that this was 4B was a part of the Voting Rights Act from the 19, mid-1960s. And it, it was punitive, and I understand why it was struck down. Um, there was a handful of states that were selected that said, if you're going to do something with voting, it needs to go to the attorney general to review. And these were states in the past that had the most egregious uh, Jim Crow implementation and segregation. The, the problem with it, the reason why I agree with it getting straight down is because it only applied to a handful of states. The problem is not only in a handful of states anymore. Actually, it never was. <laughs> that was a misnomer. <laughs> um, and I'll give that to, you know, anybody who wants, who wants to represent the South and say, you know, we, we weren't treated fairly. Not necessarily, no. You, a lot of you, a lot of the Southern states were used as an example. Um, but these problems were persistent and pervasive throughout the United States. As far as racism and segregation, it just was worse in some areas than others. And 4B was targeting historically those areas where it was worse, but it's not like that today. So yes, strike down 4B, but it doesn't mean that we should open up the floodgates of gerrymandering, which is the effect of this cause. You strike down 4B, it opened up Alabama and all these states to be able to create new gerrymandered maps. Now I know in the courts recently, there's been some pushback against gerrymandering, but the reason why I'm bringing this up to me, it, it's the segue to our call to action. And before I jump into our call to action, normally we would have a mid-roll, we're gonna skip it. This, this episode's too important and we're over time. But before I jump to call to action, Ray, is there some um, pin you wanna put in this or comment? Because I feel like I've been talking. Well, I mean, I, I don't have anything to put into it additionally. Just that, I it's the writing is on the wall here. I don't know how anyone can look at this list holistically and think that we don't have 
room to grow and that this isn't a journey that's not over. So I hope that most agree that I feel the same way I did. I came into this with um, just wanting to learn more. And now I understand better that uh, we have really done a dance here and it's dangerous um, and it's not over. And we're seeing it play out the same way. I, I, history repeats itself, continues to speak with me more and more, even more we speak. This is obvious and, and it, is, it is pervasive. Um, and it, 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 it's alive. These dates are shocking. These dates are shockingly close to current. It really is. It's... I can't believe I didn't do this a long time ago too, because I've always had kind of like this list in my mind because over the years I've been picking up points on it and just always amazed. I'm like, wow, but like that military one, especially that was new to me. I didn't realize how recent that was, 80, 86 or whatever. So um, to segue off of what you were talking about, our rights are precarious, they're precious, and they're not guaranteed as illustrated by this list. And um it's under assault. It's under assault. I, I'm just going to read a headline. Voting laws proposed by Republicans in 43 states would limit voter access. This was a Washington Post article. I don't need to go through it. It's, it's a pretty decent litany of all the activities. It's got bullet point diagrams and plot gra graphs and, and, and great data. Um, point is, be afraid. Be very afraid. 43 states. You know there's 50 states. Hopefully 51 someday. But 50 states in the union of that 43 are putting in, they're closing, maybe they're reducing funding for polling places, closing polling places, reducing um, precincts, they are reducing early voting periods, access to early voting, they're putting in voter ID requirements. So there's hurdles being placed, and then there's a reduction in availability to voting at the same time, both of these things. They're trying to do what's been done in the past to reduce certain votes. Um, and in this, it says Republicans, you know, in the title, I don't want people to get blinded by the label, whoever it is, because it's obviously it's not all Republicans. Um, so I don't like, I don't like this us versus them, Democrats versus Republicans. We've, we've got good apples and bad apples, which is a bad example too, but it's the truth. Um, Republicans, unfortunately, are a more hierarchical, authoritarian style operation to begin with. Um, so they've, they're going to have to work that out because right now um, the Bible they're holding is illegitimate, in my opinion. But it's under assault. I'm, the point of this episode is not to convince you that your rights are under assault. It was to convince you that your rights are not guaranteed. They never have been. And as of today, they won't be, unless we do something, unless we take action, unless we keep moving the needle, um, which I know is a phrase people don't want to hear anymore. But I want you to know that the first resolution that passed this House, that the House that we have today in Congress, HR1, House Resolution 1, is for the People Act. And it's really important that everybody um, becomes somewhat aware of this and, and the status of it. I want you to know HR1 did pass the House. And why does it matter? It's a bill that's aimed at helping to move the needle. Okay, just as a synopsis, and this is from congress.gov. 
This bill addresses voter access, election integrity, security, campaign finance, and ethics for the three branches of government. It expands voter registration and access to voting. It requires states to establish independent redistricting commissions to carry out congressional redistricting. And I will tell you in California, we do this. Arizona is another story we can talk about another time. Um, but these redistricting, independent redistricting commissions are the way to go. As of right now, 50 state experiments, California has implemented this through ballot initiative, not through our elected officials. <laughs> the citizens implemented it for them and it's working very well. It's been upheld um, as a good model uh, for us to start moving forward on. So that's in this HR1. And it also sets forth provisions for additional security, sharing intelligence information with state officials, um, all kinds of things around securing elections and then campaign finance, et cetera. The last line on here, which I think Ray is a favorite of yours here, the bill requires the president, the vice president and certain candidates for those offices to disclose 10 years of tax returns. Why not? Why should that just be a, what is it? You know, just precedence. Why should that be? Yeah. Why should we leave that up to decorum? Because apparently there are people who have no decorum. None. No decorum. Be gone. You have no civility. <laughs> oh, so ladies and gentlemen, everyone in between, please hear this call to action. Follow HR1. It passed the House. It's waiting for the Senate to pick it up. Mm -hmm. I, it should not be controversial, but now that you've seen the patriarchy, and the fact that they are really terrified with us with unfettered access to voting. <laughs> um, it's in our best interest as citizens, the citizens' prerogative to get to hopefully get HR1 passed. Now, there are other acts. There's like there, there's a John Lewis Act and and some other ones. This one, based on all of the you know, political wonks and the law wonks. I think HR1 is the one least likely to get rejected by the courts or whatnot. So um, in any case, be aware of that. Contact your senator. It's in the Senate. It's got to come up for a vote. Contact your senator. Make sure you voice your support for HR1 um, coming up in the Senate. It, it's critical. And, and Ray, you were mentioning they keep track of those metrics, right? So if you call, they, you email. You call, you email. They they. They, 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 don't, they don't pay the staffers, I don't think, but they are people that are in those offices that are taking that analytical data and providing it. And, you know, whether people listen to analytics or not, we, we don't know, right? But it, it's got to be better, just like voting is better than not voting. Saying something is better than not. And that's what we'd say is call to action is get out there, make your voice heard, blow up the switchboard. Silence is violence and it's violence against yourself. In this case, if you don't contact your senator and support HR1 for the People Act. And then lastly, because of the writing on the wall, the virtual wall here with the history that we went through, find out what it takes to vote in your county and keep tabs on it. If you're in a county or in a state where there are additional requirements, hurdles, restrictions, um, maybe a lack of availability, maybe early voting, you, you need to stay apprised. It's your responsibility. And I know it's not popular. We hope we can get people excited about voting over time. Um, but really, really just do that. Stay, stay registered, stay on your voting rolls, even if they try and kick you off and then make sure you vote. Um, we like to think of November. It's always November, but 
not in every district, not for every election. We have a special election. We haven't figured out when we're going to be voting for our governor, reelecting our governor in California yet. Um, but that's going to come up sometime between July and November. That's <laughs> crazy. Um, but it's our responsibility to figure that out and support HR1. Vote, figure out when you can vote, get registered, and support HR1, please. I think that's going to do us. Anything else, Ray? Good to go. All right. We have been your hosts. Thank you to Mr. Raymond Wong Jr. And thank you to Mr. Piscatelli. You know, when you do the hokey pokey, you still turn yourself around. And that's what it's all about. I think that's where we are. Hopefully we're at the part where we turn ourselves around. Good job. (laughs) This has been something, that's for sure. I'm going to go turn myself around. For information on this and other episodes, head over to citizendugan.com and click on podcast. While you're there, hit up our contact us page and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from the community. Special thanks to you, our listeners. We save the best for last. You are the best and you have been for years. Thank you for your support. We know it's painful and we love you. Intro music sample from OK Class by Ozzy Jock under Creative Commons license through freemusicarchive.org. Other music provided royalty-free through Fisleyan Studios, Inc.